Good morning, everybody. I really do love when I get to be here with you guys. Um, so I'm very excited to be here with you this Sunday. I, um, I don't know if you guys have noticed or not, but um, there seems to be a lot of conflict in our world, right? We seem to be somewhat divided. Um, it seems like everywhere we turn, there are people with differing opinions who feel the need to share it as loudly as possible or as frequently as possible. And the reality is that social media has only served to make it even easier for us to disagree with each other and to do it rather poorly. But the reality is that as culturally divided as we are now and as much conflict as there is in the world right now, this has been throughout human history. There isn't a time in our past where we can't see huge wars fought over division. There isn't a time where we haven't seen families divided over arguments. Unfortunately, conflict is a part of who we are. It's with us wherever we go. Now, the reality is there are a variety of different reasons for conflict. You know, it might be a personality conflict that we have. We might have different ideologies, theologies, life goals and purposes. Change. Change is a big one, right? When things change, we get uncomfortable. And when we're uncomfortable, there tends to be conflict. Sometimes... It's just our own insecurities. Sometimes whatever's going on inside of us tends to just spew out all over whoever happens to be near us. There really is no avoiding the fact that life comes with conflict. And yet, it doesn't have to be done poorly. You see, we as Christians seem to have three kind of standard go-to approaches to dealing with conflict. And, uh, you know, the first one is that we're, we're Christians, so we're not supposed to be in conflict. So we're just going to shove everything deep down. We're not supposed to fight. We're not supposed to argue. Everybody's supposed to get along. I'm just going to yes you to death or be a doormat, and everything's going to be fine because I'm just going to nod and say yes. So that's one of the approaches that we take right? The other approach is that we tend to, ra to, to wave Jesus like a flag and beat people over the head with him, right? This is what we should do. You should do this. And the other way we tend to deal with conflict is we kind of divorce our faith from it, right? Jesus doesn't really figure into how I disagree with you or how I articulate my feelings on social media, how does Jesus fit in? No, he's good over there. I'm, I've got this, God. You don't need to worry about that part. You can take care of the rest of the part, right? So these are the three kind of go-to ways that, that we see ourselves maybe or other Christians handle conflict. And the reality is that they are really, really unhealthy. They only serve to deepen divides. They leave us with hurt feelings, bitterness, and resentment. They are certainly not ways that we are drawing ourselves closer to each other or closer to God. 
But it's not like God didn't know we were going to be in conflict with one another. I mean, he knew this was part of the way we were from the time of the fall. It invaded everything we do. And you know what? He gave us tons of amazing examples of ways to handle conflict, good and not so good, in the books of the Bible. You pretty much can't read a book of the Bible without coming across either direct instruction on how to handle conflict or examples of really poorly handled conflict or well-handled conflict. He equipped us with lots of great information. And so that leads us to the series that we're starting this week in Conflict Revolution. A revolution is when we want to overthrow the current way of doing things. We want to overthrow the way we've been doing conflict. We want to handle it differently. We want to look at what conflict could look like if handled as a disciple of Christ. How does that look different? than perhaps the way the world handles it or even the way that we would want to handle it. Now, going into all of this, the one thing that we absolutely have to keep in mind is the fact that we cannot control others. We can only control ourselves. And that sounds basic, and we can all nod, and I'm the first one to say it. I am also the first one to try and control absolutely every aspect of mine and everybody else's life who's near me. So understand that this is one of my greatest battles, is to try and let go of control and to recognize the only person I can control is myself. Now, that doesn't mean I just throw up my hands and do whatever I want because I can't impact the people around me. It doesn't matter. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Instead, what it means is that I have a responsibility to make sure that I am controlling myself, handling myself in the way that God would call me to, in the way that shows Jesus' love, even in the midst of turmoil and frustration and grief. You know, when my kids were little, um, they'd be off playing in the, in the playroom, and inevitably, one of them would come running in, she pinched me! And the other one would follow behind, she called me a duty head! You know, whatever it was. And, okay, take a deep breath. You shouldn't call her a duty head. No matter what she does, you can't pinch her. The idea of being responsible for our own behavior is one we've tried to instill from a very early age with our kids. Because it doesn't matter how that person responds to me. It doesn't matter what they did to provoke me, and they may have done good things to provoke me. I'm still responsible for the way that I respond to that provoking. I still need to take care of the way I act. The reality is it boils down to the fact that we can choose to handle conflict one of two ways. Our way or God's way. And speaking from a lot of experience in doing it wrong, God's way is so much better. 
inevitably, I end up making things a million times worse when I try to take care of it in my own strength. So what does it mean? What does it mean to do conflict God's way? That's a very churchy thing. What does that mean? Well, ultimately, what it means is that we are taking a minute. We are checking our words, checking our reactions and our motivations, checking them through Jesus so that these conflicts we're having can actually serve to deepen relationships, not deepen resentments. When we are able to approach conflict with the ultimate goal of the other person's best interest as well as ours, the whole way we look at that interaction changes. Now, we're going to be looking at those three aspects over the next three weeks. We'll be talking about how we check our words, our reactions, and our motivations. Specifically this week, we're going to be looking at what it means to submit our words to God. What does it mean to check our words? Because we know that words have power. Words have power to breathe life into someone or to tear someone down. You know, as kids, we always used to say that, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words can never hurt me. I think as adults, we all recognize that's not true. Words can absolutely hurt. And when I look back on my life, there are milestones marked by both words that spoke life to me and words that cut me down. The reality is, as adults, we have the ability to step aside and say how much control we're going to let other people's words have on our lives. The only words that should have control over our lives are the words of God. His truth. His truth is who defines who we are, not the truth that others may tell us. His truth. But it's not easy, is it? Every time those words of hurt that have been spoken to us, it knocks us down. It takes time for us to, to sort out what's going on. What do I need to own? What, does this really define me or does God define me? It is something that we wrestle with continually in our lives. And we don't want to do that to others either. We don't want our words, whether intentional or careless, to cause other people that same turmoil. We want our words to be bringing life and reconciliation and deeper relationship. Now, James tells us pretty point blank the power that he sees words as having, okay? So in the scripture that we're going to look at, James is actually talking about how something very small can steer and control something very large. So he gives the example of the fact that you can put a bit in a horse's mouth and you can steer the whole beast. He also talks about a rudder um, on a ship being able to steer, steer an entire ship. So this is where we pick up with him, and he's saying, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a, great, what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire. 
a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grape vine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. He has some pretty strong things to say about the power of our words. And what's even harder to hear is when Matthew and Mark both reiterate it and take it a step further, saying that the words we speak are an overflow of our hearts. Ouch! I don't know about you, but that stings. Because the words that are coming out of my mouth are not what I want my heart to be. And the reality is, as much as our words may impact other people, our words impact us. Because it is an overflow of our hearts. Others can choose to listen or disregard. We have owned those words. And we carry that in our hearts. Our words are as dangerous to us as they are to others as well. And that's what James is talking about when he talks about setting us on a path. So there are two things that we need to look at here. There's two different parts of this. The first is that the words are an overflow of our hearts. And because of that, we're going to need to take some time to address what's going on in our hearts. We're going to need to take some time to focus on what it is that we are thinking and believing and acting upon. What is driving us? And we're going to be doing that over the next two weeks specifically. But the reality is, it's a process. All of this is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. We're not going to get it right the first time. We're not going to get it right the second time. It is a process that is continually happening as the Holy Spirit is within us, refining us. We are not going to get it perfect this side of heaven. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things we can do. And that's the second part, what comes out of our mouths. So the reality is that what comes out of our mouths, regardless of the internal struggles that we are facing, we're still responsible for. We still want to be able to have what comes out of our mouths be words for reconciliation and healing and joy and peace and the love of Jesus. So let's look at just a couple of the things the Bible tells us 
about how we can manage what comes out of our mouths. The first one, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. Hmm. I don't know about you, but I am not so slow to speak. I am fairly quick to speak, um, and it often gets me in trouble. But one of the things I have learned is that there are times where I'm quicker to speak than others. So what we may need to do, first of all, is to take a look at ourselves and say, okay, I know that I tend to be hmm, quickest to sleep, speak, slowest to listen when I'm angry. So identify when it is. For me, I tend to be um, the quickest to speak, uh, the slowest to listen when I'm tired. So for years in my life, my husband and I have had the rule that there are no major discussions to be had after 10 p.m. because Heather goes crazy. There's just no rational thought left. And if I'm completely honest, that was kind of like the pre-kid rule. Post-kids, it's like eight. Like, it's, the older I get, the earlier it is. Dude, you got to set your alarm at 6 a.m. if you want to have a conversation because I'm done. So for me, I do recognize that we have to table any serious discussions because I'm not rational and my filter is gone. I don't have what is left to be able to converse with God at the same time I'm conversing with someone else. To say, hey God, do you think I should have said that? Almost always his answer is, no, you really shouldn't have said that. So knowing when it is, knowing when it is, and being quick to listen. Now, Modern culture, psychology, leadership, they're going to call that active listening. That, that's probably not a new term to you. Active listening, reflective listening, this is when you are truly not formulating your retort, but instead you are actually listening. You're able to say back to the person what they've articulated to you. And this is helpful for a variety of reasons. One, because it shows them that you were listening. And two, because then you can determine whether you actually heard them accurately or not. So a lot of the times, you know, we'll say, well, what I heard you say was, and they'll go, no, what are you, crazy? That's not what I said. This is what I meant. Oh, I'm not upset at all now. So <laughs> there are lots of times that our conflict really truly is a miscommunication. We're speaking on two different wavelengths. We've made assumptions, and they've made assumptions, and our assumptions do not line up. And instead, we're arguing about something that we don't even know why we're arguing. But the emotions have now kicked in, and it's out there. Right? So that active listening during a time period that's good for you is a great way to neutralize a conflict before you even get there and to deepen a relationship because you are hearing them, and they are feeling heard. The next thing we can look at is over at Ephesians, and Paul tells us, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. All right, so there's a couple of things that I see here. The first is that anger isn't bad. He doesn't say don't be angry. 
He says, in your anger, do not sin. There are plenty of times in our lives where we are justified in our anger, where we have seen, witnessed, or been victims of injustice, where we have been unfairly judged, where we have been victimized. There is a righteous anger. Unfortunately, most often, that righteous anger leads to unrighteous behavior. So often when we are caught up in that emotion of anger, it takes control rather than us controlling it. Even in our righteous anger, we are responsible for the words that come out of our mouths and the actions that we do. So it is important that we recognize even when we are right, our behavior still needs to follow suit. See, Paul is very clear that we shouldn't harbor anger, right? Because that can lead to bitterness, resentment, and division, right? That's the whole don't let the sun go down on your anger, correct? Well, FYI, in my house, if we have an argument at 9 o'clock, it's going to be worse than if the sun goes down and comes up the next day and we have a discussion, he is not literally talking about that time frame. He's talking about don't stuff it. Deal with it. It doesn't mean that you can't take a time out. We call timeouts all the time. When the kids were little, I used to be like, Mommy's taking a timeout up to my room. But the, the reality is we can call a timeout. We may need to. Because when that adrenaline starts pumping, when we start to see red, when the heat flushes on, we aren't thinking clearly. We are acting on emotion. It's where the expression cooler heads prevail. Sometimes we need to call a timeout so we can step aside, so we can submit our words to God. We may need to separate for a little while to be able to think Lisa Turkrist um, coined the phrase, feelings are indicators, not dictators. And I love it. I absolutely love it because it's exactly right. Feelings, any of our strong emotions, whether it is fear or whether it is anger, whether it is um, sadness or despair, all of those are indicators that we need to look inside. They're indicators that something is going on we need to address but they should not dictate the way we address it. When we let them, we lose all control. So, take that time. Send yourself for a timeout. Try and do a paradigm switch. Put yourself in that other person's shoes. Recognize what you don't know about the situation. Because there are lots of times that we've constructed scenarios in our heads that are not reality. So take a moment. Look at it from their perspective. Recognize what you don't know. Pray about it. Ask God and the Holy Spirit to guide the words that you should use in that conversation. 
we were talking about this just recently in my small group and uh, talking about, you know, when that anger hits and everything, and they were using the example of when you're driving down the street and somebody cuts you off or they swerve around you and they're just crazy drivers. And, um, and you know, you're tempted, or maybe you're not, I'm tempted, to, like, want to scream and yell. My kids tell me I have road rage. Scream and yell, you know, all kinds of anger at the driver who just did whatever. Um, so I do the whole paradigm switch thing. And I've decided now that that person clearly was in labor and going to have a baby right that second. And they had to get to the, to the hospital. Or it was a husband who got the call that their wife was in labor, and they were desperately trying to get to the hospital to be with them, right? So this is, there are so many pregnant people having babies out there, ladies and gentlemen. Let me tell you, I am driving down the road every day with, oh, pregnant lady, oh, he's on his way to the hospital. Um, but the reality is I don't know what I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they're just a moron, but maybe there really is something going on in their lives that they're trying to take care of. Immediately when I remove myself from the center of the equation and look at their perspective, it helps to immediately cut the anger. The emotion suddenly dwindles, and I can think rationally again. The same thing happens whether we are in conflict with a spouse, with a child, with a sibling, with a boss, a parent, whoever it is. That same paradigm can exist. And if we can switch it over and allow ourselves to look at someone else's perspective, often, just in doing that, we can have a much more fruitful discussion one that will lead to true reconciliation rather than resentment. All right, and the third thing we're going to look at today is in Matthew. If a brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Notice what it doesn't say here. So it doesn't say if your brother sins against you, post it all over social media. It doesn't say if your brother sins against you, tell absolutely everyone you know. It doesn't say if your brother sins against you, go do it back to him. And yet, these are our go-tos. That's what our instinct is. This is why it's revolutionary. It's counterintuitive. You may need to take a break if your brother sins against you. You may need to put yourself in timeout. You might even need spiritual counsel from someone further down the road than you. That is different than going to everybody under the sun and telling them what it is that person did to you. For me, it is immensely helpful when my emotions are woven into a situation for me to go to someone who is removed from that situation, who is further in their walk with God than I am, and to say, look, I, here's what I want to do. <laughs> Help me see where God's leading me. And to know that there is someone praying for you, guiding you through challenging situations, be a huge blessing. And when you are able then to do a paradigm shift, to look at that other's perspective, to go to them, whether they respond well or not, there is a peace that comes for you. You have not exacerbated a situation. 
You have done all that you could do in your control. The likelihood of reconciliation is far greater, but even if that does not occur, you have done what you could do, what God calls us to within your control. Can you imagine how different the world would be if we stopped talking about others, stopped talking at others, but started talking with each other? This is how we create a conflict revolution. When we stop stuffing and acknowledge what's going on inside of us. When we can see another's perspective. When we can approach conflict with the love of Jesus as our primary goal. Revolutionary things happen. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not easy. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And it takes supernatural help. We're going to get it wrong. We're going to drop the ball. And then you do the next right thing. You go you ask forgiveness. Because even in that act, even in the dropping of the ball, the messing up, that act of seeking forgiveness brings us closer to reconciliation and is revolutionary in and of itself. How many relationships do you know where walls have been built simply because people refused to ask forgiveness. I've seen it happen in my family. I've seen it happen in friends' families where they know, yeah, I might have dropped the ball there, but they're not going to admit it out loud to the person they dropped the ball on. Even that act of seeking forgiveness when we're wrong can start a conflict revolution. James tells us, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. We will be blessed in what we do. band's going to come up and we're going to close out in singing together. While they're doing that, I just want to promise you, when we seek God, when we take being a disciple into every aspect of our lives, he will be there with healing. He will be there with joy. He will be there to revolutionize the relationships in our lives. So go into this week knowing that you have a revolutionary God waiting to do a revolution in the relationships in your life. Go knowing that he goes before you and that he is just waiting to bless you as you are conformed to the image of Christ 
for the sake of others. Have a great week.